Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Caleb Wild. He's a sixth generational funeral director, an author, and a writer of a popular blog centered on death, dying, and funeral arrangements. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Harper One was nice enough to send me a free copy of your book, which is Confessions of a Funeral Director, How the Business of Death Saved My Life. And I have to say, um, you got into to some shenanigans when you were uh, young within the funeral world because your family has a very long history with being funeral directors. We do. I grew up around death in funeral homes. Both of my grandparents owned separate funeral homes. Uh, and they were competing funeral homes. So my parents are kind of like Romeo and Juliet uh, type relationship where they came from uh, the same backgrounds, although competing. My mom vowed she'd never marry marry a funeral director, but uh, here I am. And so, yeah, I, I grew up playing hide and go seek in the casket rooms. <laughs> um. Wow. Uh, how was that? Uh, I was pretty good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't get in then. That was the only thing. But we would turn the, the lights off. Uh, so you'd basically be feeling your way around the showrooms, which is what we call them, showrooms like they're cars or something. And we would you know, find some spaces in a corner that we thought our cousins couldn't get us. And that's where we'd sit for five minutes until they did. Uh, yeah. Spooky. I couldn't do that. Yeah. I don't think I would now. I, it is kind of weird. <laughs> well, you know, like I said, your uh, book is called, you know, Confessions of a Funeral Director, How the Business of Death Saved My Life. And the question is, how did it save your life? I started working at the funeral home at the age of 16. And up until then, I, I felt like I had a good relationship with death. I'd seen it a lot as a young child. I'd walked in on my grandfather embalming a body. So these things weren't new to me. But at 16 and 17 and 18, I was exposed to a number of tragedies that uh, soured my relationship with death. In fact, it kind of created and solidified a narrative of death that was entirely negative. Uh, I saw some children uh, die and uh, not die. Thank, thank God I didn't see them die, but I saw them dead. Uh, and I wanted to get away from the, the funeral home as best I could. So I uh, thought I would do something life-giving. After high school, I became a humanitarian aid worker and did that for two years. But uh, yeah, so it that narrative, though, eventually began to change as I re-entered the funeral business, uh, although it took a number of years and a lot of stories. Well, you were also, it was like a missionary little stint, right? Yes. Or was it? Yes, it was. So talk to me a little bit of, about what did you do, and then how did you end up 
it, it sounds sort of like you ran from the funeral business, but you ended up coming back full circle to it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I use humanitarian aid worker because it's kind of like a nice neutral term. It was a religious organization. And I know that, you know, I try to avoid those things because when you bring religion into death, people automatically assume you're going to lace everything with some spiritual terminology. And that's not what I want to do. Uh, that's not what I'm about. But I, I was a very religious person as a child, and I still maintain a, a large degree of spirituality in my life. But so religious that I thought that the best thing that I could do for people, since at that time, after seeing the things that I saw, I, I thought the earth was going to hell. I saw all these tragedies and this place is messed up. So I'll do what I think is best and help people escape the world by going to heaven. Um, and I think that's what a lot of us do when confronted with death. There's, uh, it's so scary and big and silent that we fill it with the words of an afterlife, uh, hoping that the afterlife somehow makes the present all better. And that's what I was doing, uh, when I ran away from the funeral home, but I didn't do the evangelistic things that I was going, thought I'd do when I became a missionary. In fact, I trekked medical supplies uh, into indigenous villages, and it was there that I started to see how uh, action in the present uh, can bring love uh, to earth. And it, it made me realize that maybe the funeral home isn't such a dark place after all. Uh, that maybe there's a lot of beauty that takes place there. So I meandered back to Parksburg. Well, throughout this book, I, I find your humor just, just funny. I mean, it, it's, it's so subtle, but yet it, it will come up and sneak up on you. And where did you find your humor growing up in a funeral home? It, I think it's a coping me mechanism that most funeral directors have. You know, we're kind of painted as these dark, brood brooding figures with uh, a black trench coat and a cane. But most of us have really weird senses of humor. And a lot of the things that we joke about are certainly not, uh, you know, dinner table conversation. So most funeral directors are funny. My dad's a really funny guy. My grandfather's a really funny guy. And I kind of grew up around that. Uh, you know, when you're in a difficult situation, you make a joke. Well, just like being in the hospice world and, and there's this, yeah, call this hospice humor yes. that the nurses and, and everybody have. And, and maybe you're right. I never thought of it as a coping mechanism, but I think it is. And it, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually read that it, disables your fight or flight mode. So when you can find a way to laugh when you're super tense, uh, it switches your brain so that in one moment you're like, I'm an animal and I either want to kill something or run away. And a joke happens and all of a sudden you're human again. And I think that uh, with death, you know, kind of it's that old evolutionary enemy. And whenever we confront it, we're flipped onto the fight or flight. And then humor. And humor definitely helps to uh, humanize us. Well, I, I tend to totally agree with you because 
I use a lot of humor and I have seen a lot of humor, especially with hospice patients in very difficult situations, just lean back and crack the most simplest of jokes. And you you don't want to laugh, but it's like really funny. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, it's almost like you get this giggle in church right. and you're like, I know I'm not supposed right. to laugh. Please, please don't laugh now. <laughs> but in your book, you, you, you really talk about how death creates a community. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes. I, I'm not sure that there would be community without death. Uh, something that I've thought about uh, before. But if we weren't mortal, if we didn't need other people, uh, I don't think we'd ever reach out. But death and mortality, it's that part of us that reminds us uh, that we have needs that we can't meet on our own. And we need other people in our lives. Um, so, you know, you look at places and spaces and horrible occurrences like what just happened in Vegas. And you see all, almost this, and I know this is going to sound weird, but you see a paradise in hell. So on the one hand, there's horrible terror. And on the other hand, you see the most genuine acts of love and kindness that could ever exist. So you have this odd contrast where the most difficult things in our lives bring out of us our best. And oftentimes that best is seen in this beautiful community that arises around death. Hmm. Why do you think it takes something tragic to bring that really good side out of humanity? Oh God, I wish I, I wish, I wish I knew. I recall it was September 11th. Uh, you know, some horrific things that have happened in our United States, like you mentioned, you know, what happened in Las Vegas. Um, yeah, I wish I knew that switch because I've really hope one day we don't need these tragedies right. <laughs> to tap into that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird how these things, the most inhuman acts make us the most human. And I wish we didn't need those inhuman acts to love that the way, the way that we love when there's such horrible tragedy and when there's death. I've often said that, uh, heaven takes place in hell. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, uh, that's the way it is. And I wish, I wish I had an answer. Um, uh, but I don't. Well, even thinking about my own family and the funerals that I've attended for great grandmothers and grandparents and even some close friends, you know, there's some stuff that comes out at funerals and it's, um, it's not always good. Right. I mean, it, it it doesn't bring the best out of people sometimes. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> so have you experienced anything? I'm sure you have, but I'm just dying to know what kind of things have you seen? Yeah. Yeah, it does create, it can, it seems like it can go either way. We either lean into it and something beautiful happens or it's this great environment for a Jerry Springer show. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's so many times where I felt like, uh, like Maury or, or Jerry Springer trying to stop feuding factions 
And that is the part that I, I dread, you know, when there's like, I just read. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, you have, we have had this before where a mistress has been involved. Uh, but these things we keep very private for obvious reasons. But when that happens, you know, they'll call us and they'll be like, um, so weird story, you know, the guy that you're bearing, I'm his mistress. And I'm wondering if, uh, you could open up the funeral home so I could see him. And we're just put in this really awkward situation. I mean, what do we do? Does, does the wife know that you're the mistress and do we call the <laughs> wife? And, um, is this something that everybody's cool with? Uh, do, are we the bearer of this horrible news? Hey, your husband died, but not only that, he was cheating on you. Um, so, <laughs> so it's just these awkward situations where we're the media mediators between, um, in the midst of life and death. Well, I definitely will not ask about some of the outcome in some of those situations, but I hope you're still, you're still here. You're still, you know, you don't look beat up. No. So you, <laughs> um, you have had your own near death experience. How has that changed your outlook on how you see death? Yeah. So that was a starting point for me to start looking for the good spaces in death. You know, in my book, I talk about how I had an entirely death negative narrative. I saw no redeeming value in it. And I started to find some positivity in death, some spirituality. And it was when I was closest to death that that started. Uh, I had an experience, a lot of stress. I was in school. Uh, no, I, I was, um, I, I did school after I graduated from funeral school. Um, I, I'm a nerd, a glutton for punishment. I, I like school. And uh, I started to have eye twitches and all these kind of things that culminated in me passing out. And of course, as a funeral director, anytime something like that happens, you assume the worst. Uh, there was, a, it's, you know, it's like... <laughs> looking up, Googling common cold on the internet and suddenly you're dying. Um, and that was me. But actually there was a cop that was there because the reason all these things were happening in me that came to a head, we had a family that was fighting and words were spoken where we had to involve a cop because, uh, we weren't sure what would happen at the funeral. So we were going over what we do if something did happen. And it was that point that I keeled over. The cop called the ambulance. I was rushed to the hospital. And I evaluated whether or not I should stay in the business uh, over the next couple of days. And it was a turning point for me. I think oftentimes it's at those lowest points that we start to look up and we start to think, think about our life. And I, for some reason that I can't entirely explain, decided that I'd stay and that instead of walking away from death, I'd try to reframe it. I'd try to look, start looking for those spaces that were more redeeming and finding uh, the life that can come through death. So yeah, so that was kind of a starting point for me. And in and uh, uh, a turning point in the book as well. 
Well, you mentioned death narrative and death negative narrative. And you even in the book talk about how people in institutions like hospitals and nursing homes, um, they have that death kind of negative narrative. What, what does that mean to you? Well, I think the death narrative negative narrative, it comes from multiple places. And and uh, it's it's something that's so culturally entrenched that most of us don't even know that we have it. But the basic meaning or the basic statement of this narrative is that there's nothing redeeming in death and that every death is horrible and every death is going to make you feel utter and intense pain. And I don't think that's true. I think there are good deaths. I think there's beauty in death. And I think uh, there's sacred spaces created in death that help us to reevaluate everything we've ever thought. But we don't look for those spaces because we have this narrative. And uh, that's something that I want to change. And I want to help people to look for those spaces in death where we can see the life. I know that's... (laughs) That sounds cliche. I know it sounds cliche. (laughs) Well, you talk about refraining. And and really, you're talking about life. You know, how we live our life, how we, we all, like the present moment changed your own refrain, like living in this moment. It, and I think that we're talking about life, and I think that we have to dig down to to examine our own mortality and how we're living our life to even lean into that death. And I believe you've done that. And through this book, uh, there's a, a part, and I, it's on you know page 27, where you talk about being broken open. And the last sentence of what you were trying, you were saying, the the broken heart. The broken open heart uses grace to build and bind the broken. And I think, you know, we this is universal. This whole death thing, no one's going to escape it. And it also equals why I think we're living, which is connection. That we're connected. And so talk to me a little bit about how leaning into this in changing the death narrative, how has that helped you live? Yeah, it's it's helped me to live in the present. I mean, and of course, people talk about that a lot where when you understand your mortality and you understand there's a real limit on the amount of time that you have, it helps the moments become more precious. But a lot of us, we live the opposite. I, I call it death virginity. We don't have any sense or any experience with death and we don't have any sense or experience of our own mortality. And so we kind of live like this is going to just keep going on and we can keep uh, not pursuing our goals and not pursuing a better life because we'll be able to change it down the road. And that's not always the case. So for me, uh, an understanding of my mortality, that it's very real, that we have no idea when it's going to happen, when we'll die, has helped me to embrace not only the moment, but the goals that I have in life, how much I love you know, spending time with my son, 
Uh, and the, the simple choices every day, like, do I work a little extra hard or do I go home and play with my son? So that type of choice, when it's informed by this understanding of my mortality, a real understanding, it helps me to lean towards relationships and not things. It helps me to lean towards love and not success. And so that's something uh, and uh, that's something that uh, every day I, I feel like uh, death helps me do. Well, I think that was said very, very beautifully. Well, but you're not the average funeral director because average funeral directors don't write about these things on a blog. They don't have a book getting ready to be officially published. I think I don't know if it is it out yet. Your book? It's it is the umbilical cord has been cut. It's yay. It's, it's been birthed. <laughs> so what why blog about your experience? Because you you got a sort of following following you and then you started somewhat of a podcast that you did I, I've listened to a few of them. So why is it important for you to talk about being a funeral director and death? I know you mentioned refrain, but I mean, not every funeral director is blogging about what they do. Some of it is selfish. Like I am an introvert and I just need to get stuff out of me or, or it stays in and kind of eats me away. So there's that. There's another part where the funeral industry is just so secretive. And I feel like because it's secretive, it's too easy for funeral directors to take advantage of people in their grief. Uh, so there's that. I feel like the more transparent I can be, the more prepared uh, people will be when it comes uh, time to deal with us as funeral directors. So that's part of it. And I feel like I you know, have a perspective like a hospice worker or, or somebody else where we're dealing with death all the time. And uh, that perspective, I think, is, is one that is valuable. It's it's a perspective that, that needs to be voiced. And so um, kind of that, that whole mix, that cauldron of selfishness and uh, transparency and voice uh, is, is the thrust behind what I do. Well, you know, as a writer myself, I look at a book and, you know, it must feel good to see your name and a book that you work so hard to birth, as you say, how's it feel? It feels good. Um, yeah, well, my grandfather read it and my grandfather's 87 and I was really not sure what he was going to think. Um, you know, cause he makes some cameos in the book here and there. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, he's not a, well, he doesn't really understand what I do. In fact, he can't even pronounce blog. He calls it blob. How's your blob doing, Caleb? Uh, and uh, so he read it in two days and he loved it. And I think that's that's probably been the highlight so far of the whole experience oh, nice. is knowing that my grandfather doesn't hate my book. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so true, though. <laughs> Uh, because I really didn't want him to read about himself and and be upset with the way that I presented him. 
So I'm happy. I'm happy about that. So where do people find this book? Um, Amazon, anywhere else, uh, Barnes and Noble. It's, it is, uh, in any bookstore. And I think there's an audio version too. So if you like to listen, did you do the audio version of it? I, I didn't because I, I feel like I have a Lancaster County accent. Um, I border Lancaster County and I feel like I'm a mix between Amish and the Philadelphia accent. So when they <laughs> ask me, I'm like, no, I don't think you really want that. Um, so that, no, it's, it's a professional. You do have a, a website where your blog is at. Tell us how people can, can follow you. CalebWild.com, C-A-L-E-B-W-I-L-D-E.com. And uh, pretty much everything, my Twitter handle, Instagram is under Caleb Wild, and then I have a Facebook page called uh, Confessions of a Funeral Director. Um, so that's where I'm at, uh, and I'm super busy right now. Of course, you know you're when you write a book, it's part of the job description to talk about it. How's that going as an introvert? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you feel me on that? I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> I think um, you're doing a pretty good job, though. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah. And availability is, is, is another thing too, you know, so I'm, a lot of people are reading it and have, uh, experiences or, or commentary and I enjoy that. So I'm, I'm more than happy to talk when people reach out. Now, are you going to go on some type of book tour throughout the United States or is, are you kind of labored or, um, yeah. are, are you not, uh, able yeah. to do that because of your job? I couldn't get off work. Oh. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> they wanted me to take two weeks off. Uh, Harper one did, uh, but, uh, I, I couldn't do it. Well, at least you're like doing podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. The book is fabulous. I wish you the best. And I really do thank you for putting a face and to a funeral director that is not, you know, 80 years old with a cane and with a, a black robe on. Yeah. It, but just very authentic. And I love what you said about, you know, the secret world of the funeral home. And I love your transparency. And I think more individuals should be like you, even as introverted as you say you are. I think you do have a little spice of extrovert in you. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I, I do enjoy talking about these things. I, I feel like death is a uh, a place where we actually allow our deepest humanity to come out. I feel like we hide it under busyness. You know, we kind of exist in the religion of busyness in the United States. Uh, but death is that space that allows our inner selves to come out. And I love that. I love it when people open up, find transparency, and are willing to talk about the things that we've hidden for so long. I would totally agree with you. And I really do appreciate your time taking off of work and coming to talk with me, not at the funeral home, but in <laughs> yeah. your home. Yeah. <laughs> you made it a little easier for me. So That's I really good. do appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful week. And thanks again so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.